Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters, the weekly current events, media analysis, and criticism show. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be doing the program solo today as it is the holiday season. Mr. Whaley has returned to his native Ohio to visit with uh, family, as many of us are wont to do at this time of year. Pretty cold out there tonight, but uh, it will be warming throughout the week, so uh, I'm sure we'll have more to say about climate shift and all of that, but it will be rainy at the uh, end of the week here in Ann Arbor, so the predictions say. Well, it's a little early to do an end-of-the-year, year-in-review program. We'll uh, probably do that next week, although, of course, it will be uh, 2011 by then. But I do have a handful of articles today that are lengthier than I can usually get uh, time for in a uh, typical program, so I'm going to uh, jump into those. And, of course, we're never really done talking about the uh, debacle in Afghanistan. We won't be done talking about it until uh, we're not there anymore, and that uh, doesn't appear to be in the immediate future. So uh, we'll have to uh, continue to... Observe what uh, facts emerge and what discouraging prospects lie ahead. Begin with a uh, piece by Daniel Dombey in the December 18th, 19th edition of the Financial Times. He's uh, helped out by uh, Matthew Green in this article entitled Afghan War Strategy Fuels Rival Narratives. And I spoke briefly about a, a similar headline that the plot in Afghanistan has uh, slipped slipped its leash <clears throat> and is uh, no longer really in, uh, under the control of the American directors of the effort. So let's see what uh, we find here. An Afghan war strategy fuels rival narratives. The war in Afghanistan has entered its 10th year, but is only just getting started. That at least is the view of the optimists among the U.S. diplomats and military officers stationed in fortified compounds in Kabul. The surge in troops, civilian advisors, and aid money ordered by Barack Obama is only just starting to have an effect, they say. Growing war weariness in the West does not match the work being done on the ground. The military says it has pushed insurgents from important enclaves in Helmand and Kandahar in the past year, although an annual review published by the White House on Thursday acknowledged that the gains were, quote, fragile and reversible. Quote, there's a sense among us of a possible turning of the tide, a mood that things are not as bad as the London, New York, Washington intelligentsia think they are, said a U.S. official in Kabul. We sense optimism among Afghans in many quarters. I'll refrain from commenting until the article is finished. Continuing here. Such sentiments are shared from... Excuse me. Such sentiments are far from universally shared. Westerners seeking to help the Afghan state expand its presence in the wake of advances by U.S. troops say progress has been painfully slow, blunted by insecurity and Taliban intimidation. Quote, we're desperately trying to make it work, but it's not working, said an official with a development program in the South. How are we expected to create stability and encourage locals to engage with their government when we've hardly stepped outside the bases? Close quote. The contrasting views illustrate the rival narratives that have emerged around Mr. Obama's strategy. One says that it will be a costly failure, doomed by Pakistan's support for insurgents and the Taliban's ability to exploit alienation from the political order that has emerged since 2001. 
the price tag to the U.S. taxpayer of the Afghan adventure, more than $110 billion a year. I'll say that again. The price tag to the U.S. taxpayers of the Afghan adventure, more than $110 billion a year. The more confident version says that the weight of U.S. military forces will sap the insurgents' morale to the point where security improves enough for Afghan forces to take charge, economic activity to flourish, and fear to fade. And Hello Kitty uh, color farms distributed to all, no doubt. Sorry, I couldn't resist intruding on the article until the end. Back to the article. Both perspectives are competing for traction in Washington, where Mr. Obama is battling public skepticism over the war. However, some politicians, including his Republican opponents, tend to see the target of handing over to Afghan forces in 2014 is more realistic than Mr. Obama's initial announcement that a drawdown would begin in July 2011. In a strategy discussion last year, uh, Mr. Obama had sought to speed up the deployment of an extra 30,000 troops in their withdrawal so that they would both take place earlier than the military had advised. The U.S. is now looking at a protracted presence, but many doubt Washington's resolve. Faith in the Afghan mission among U.S. voters is diminishing. I wonder why. Maybe it's something to do with that $110 billion a year ticket. Uh, the biggest challenge will be to shift perceptions. Haha, <laughs> that's always the game, right? In Kandahar province, regarded as pivotal to the war, the task is daunting. Bill Harris, who stepped down as the top U.S. civilian in Kandahar last month, said people were willing to side with the state, but that the Kabul government had been slow to provide funds. He also said that U.S. aid, the U.S. Development Agency, was not delivering fast enough. Some in Kabul say the problem is not the pace of implementation, but the strategy itself. They point out that the U.S. military has made pragmatic alliances with regional strongmen that threaten to aggravate support for insurgents, that access to justice is rare, and that violence is spreading. After more than nine years of international investment, billions of dollars in aid have delivered scant benefits to the majority. Night raids on insurgent commanders, which the U.S. military trumpets as a, successful, as a success, stoke resentment. And, uh, of course, these night raids often uh, deliver mixed results. And uh, the president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, has spoken out against the night raids. Uh, but uh, we won't worry about his opinion at just this uh, moment. <clears throat> well, we'll follow this up. That was, again, Daniel Dombe and Matthew Green writing in the December 18th, 19th uh, weekend edition of the Financial Times. Turn now to a article uh, that appeared online December 23rd by Gareth Porter entitled High-Risk Raids into Pakistan. And, of course, uh, the situation in Pakistan is uh, intricately woven into the difficulties in Afghanistan. We've talked about that, uh, spoken about that numerous times down here on the program. Uh, this is on the counterpunch.org website, uh, Alexander Coburn's online journal of commentary and criticism, and Gareth Porter, 
as we scroll down, is an investigative historian and journalist with the Interpress Service specializing in U.S. national security policy. Uh, his most recent book is Perils of Dominance, Imbalance of Power and the Road to War in Vietnam. And that was published in 2006. He writes, however, December 23rd, 2010, the following article. This week's leak to the New York Times of a proposal for U.S. Special Operations Forces, SOF, raids against Afghan insurgent sanctuaries in Pakistan may be intended to put more pressure on the Pakistani military to take action against those sanctuaries. But the proposal for such cross-border raids also reflects a real demand from the U.S. NATO command in Afghanistan to target insurgent leaders inside Pakistan if the Pakistani military does not respond to the threat, according to a U.S. source familiar with discussions at the International Security Assistance Force, <coughs> ISAF, headquarters in Kabul. And the position of the Barack Obama administration on the necessity of attacking insurgent safe havens in Pakistan appears to be in line with the proposal for cross-border raids. Carrying out such raids would probably provoke a new level of anti-U.S. sentiment in Pakistan with dangerous political consequences in that country, according to experts on Pakistan. But the behavior of the national security organs of the United States in the recent past suggests that such dangers are being rationalized. The New York Times reported Monday that, quote, senior American military commanders, meaning General David Petraeus and his subordinates at the ISAF, are pushing for raids into Pakistan aimed at capturing Taliban commanders and taking them back to Afghanistan for interrogation. Rear Admiral Gregory Smith, the primary spokesman for the ISAF, issued a statement saying, quote, there is absolutely no truth to reporting in the New York Times that U.S. forces are planning to conduct ground operations into Pakistan, close quote. That did not amount to a real denial of the Times story, however. The story did not say that U.S. forces were planning to conduct such raids. In fact, it made it clear that Obama had not yet made any decision on the proposal. Shuja Nawaz, a director of the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center and a leading authority on the Pakistani military, sees the leak of the proposal for more cross-border raids as a form of psychological warfare, aimed at getting the Pakistani military leadership to take action against the Haqqani Network sanctuaries in northern Waziristan. Nawaz told IPS, however, that the timing for such an impact is off because the Pakistani military could not launch any new offensive until uh, next February, in any case, because of the weather. Furthermore, it still lacks the helicopters necessary for such operations, he said. The proposed U.S. cross-border operations are, quote, a perfect recipe for ruining even this bad relationship, said Nawaz. They would disrupt the whole enterprise in Pakistan, including the civilian government. Political opponents of the existing government would be screaming for blood, he added, and the military would feel that it had to act against the government. The U.S. National Intelligence Council warned the George W. Bush White House in August 2008 that SOF raids across the border in Pakistan would threaten the unity of the Pakistani military. A disproportionate percentage of army officers serving in the largely Pashtun tribal areas are Pashtun, the council observed, and if U.S. commando raids continued beyond a few months, it could provoke large-scale defections from the Pakistani army to the militants. 
The intelligence warning came only after Bush had approved a request from the Joint Special Operations Command for more latitude in carrying out raids against al-Qaeda and Afghan insurgency targets in Pakistan's tribal areas. The first raid in early September 2008 killed six children, two women, and at least ten innocent villagers who came out of their houses to see what was happening. When the Pakistani government and military responded angrily and threatened to disrupt cooperation with Washington, the raids were terminated. The policy being pursued by the Obama administration, however, tends to insulate it from such warnings of potentially disastrous consequences of an aggressive U.S. military role in Pakistan. The administration increased the number of CIA drone strikes in northwest Pakistan over that of the Bush administration, a policy requiring that it discount the political fallout of the drone campaign in Pakistan. The CIA has also set up fusion centers with the Pakistani intelligence agency, the ISI, aimed at making the Pakistani military more dependent on U.S. intelligence and less likely to be responsive to public opposition to U.S. military activities in Pakistan. Oh, that'll work just great. The idea of sending uh, special forces units into Pakistan to try to capture insurgent leaders was first discussed last spring, when General Stanley McChrystal was still top commander of the U.S. NATO forces in Afghanistan, according to a U.S. source familiar with the discussions about the issue in Kabul. A number of Delta Force troops in Pakistan were already operating covertly in the northwest tribal region, according to the source, and the CIA's secret Afghan militia units, the counterterrorism pursuit teams, were also being sent into Pakistan's tribal area to target Taliban and Haqqani network insurgents. But McChrystal and Petraeus, quote, believed they needed a much bigger footprint on the ground to do it, the source told the IPS. The Petraeus proposal had apparently been submitted to the administration some time ago, but the story quoted a senior American officer as saying, quote, we've never been as close as we are now to getting the go-ahead to go across, close quote. The leak to the Times followed the circulation within the administration of two national intelligence estimates on Afghanistan and Pakistan. The NIE, National Intelligence Estimates, on Afghanistan reportedly included the first formal judgment that the U.S. is unlikely to succeed in Afghanistan unless Pakistan changes its policy radically and moves decisively against insurgent sanctuaries in Pakistan. The estimate on Pakistan concluded that the Pakistani government is unlikely to change its policy towards the Taliban and the Haqqani network, as reported by the Washington Post. December 16th. The five-page summary of findings on the December review of the Afghan war strategy issued by the administration last week referred to gains as fragile and reversible and pointedly stated, quote, consolidation of those gains will require that we make more progress with Pakistan to eliminate sanctuaries for violent extremist networks. Close quote. The continued existence of sanctuaries in Pakistan and the failure of the Pakistani military to cooperate fully with the U.S. strategy could have been cited by the administration as reason for speeding up the process of withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan rather than supporting a new military adventure in Pakistan. Indeed. But the Obama administration has painted itself into a corner by refusing to acknowledge publicly that the Petraeus war strategy is not working. 
despite obvious skepticism about it in the White House. A December 16th story in the Washington Post reported that senior officials had already decided to base the administration's arguments for a significant drawdown of troops to begin in July 2011, not on the obvious failure of the Petraeus strategy, but on his claims that the strategy is succeeding. <clears throat> they consider that course, quote, less politically dangerous, close quote, than arguing that the Petraeus strategy hadn't worked, according to the Post story. It's always better to call it success as opposed to failure, a senior official was quoted as saying. Uh, pardon me while I refresh my palate with a drink of water there. Also favoring the proposal for cross-border raids is the fact that those in the administration who sought to limit the number of troops and the duration of their stay in Afghanistan, including Vice President Joe Biden, have relied heavily on special forces units to target Taliban insurgents in both Afghanistan and across the border in Pakistan, as Bob Woodward documents in his book Obama's War. The alternative to the McChrystal counterinsurgency strategy supported by Biden and others last year envisioned possible special forces raids on sanctuaries in Pakistan, according to a report in the Times of London on Tuesday. Special forces, cross-border attacks, failure and success of plans. Well, it's all kind of up in the air. Max Hastings has written a piece in the uh, December 21st Financial Times that's worth uh, reading at length. It's entitled, Heroism is No Substitute for an Afghan Strategy. And it sort of synthesizes some of the facts that have been presented in these last couple of articles and uh, draws, I think, some fairly logical conclusions that I think many listeners might share. And so I begin to read now. President Barack Obama's year-end review of the Afghan war asserted cautiously that General David Petraeus' operations are going quite well so far, which caused cynics to say that this is a 20-story building and we still have 10 to fall. All parties to the conflict, save the Taliban, perceive themselves as prisoners of an unhappy predicament. The only issue is whether some outcome can be contrived which is, quote, just good enough, to borrow one of the military's favorite cliches. Both the U.S. and British armies enthuse about progress made in Helmand and Kandahar. Markets flourishing, new schools open, civil aid projects completed, and the Highway 1 main arterial road relatively secure. Special Forces night raids on local Taliban leaderships have achieved impressive success. An insider often skeptical about military operations applauds the SAS, especially as best of British. <clears throat> the phrase most popular among commanders is, quote, bottom up. Having almost abandoned the attempt to empower President Hamid Karzai's government, they are now focused upon building local institutions in spite of Kabul where General Stanley McChrystal enjoyed an amicable, even close relationship with Mr. Karzai. His successor, General Petraeus, has almost none. He regards the president with contempt, easy to see why, and is bent upon sorting out the country without much help from its leader, a doubtful proposition. General Petraeus's efforts are focused on showing sufficient progress by summer to persuade Mr. Obama and the American people to stay the distance except a token summer troop cut in place of beginning a wholesale withdrawal. 
The towering irony about Afghanistan is that almost everyone who knows the region perceives its problems as political, and thus requiring political remedies. But because Western diplomacy seems paralyzed, soldiers are left to find all the solutions. Admiral Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said in March this year, quote, U.S. foreign policy is still dominated by the military, too dependent upon the generals and admirals who lead our overseas commands. It is one thing to be able and willing to serve as emergency responders. Quite another to always have to be the fire chief, close quote. This seems a profound and important observation. I would concur. Some of the West's finest soldiers are serving in Afghanistan, but whatever New Age gloss is put upon their role, their professional business is to fight, which must skew their vision. I have always worried that the British Army's attitude to the conflict is distorted first by its admirable can-do spirit, which has prompted persistent, unfounded optimism, and second by a desperate desire to be seen to win a campaign, to escape a humiliating retreat to Britain, where new cuts threaten the regiments as soon as they are no longer engaged. However enthusiastically armies profess commitment to winning hearts and minds, finding kinetic solutions, killing people, is what they are chiefly structured to do. The Americans and British are doing their utmost to defeat the Taliban and achieving considerable tactical success in limited areas. But it seems implausible this will suffice to resolve the underlying problems. An officer wrote to me recently, quote, There is a sense of momentum that we never had in Helmand and Kandahar this time a year ago, and if only the Afghan government would step up to the plate, we might prevail. Close quote. But his conditional is the part that matters and is unlikely to be fulfilled. Almost everything in Afghanistan is about tribal relationships, sands shifting constantly as Alakozai elders think themselves denied patronage, conceded to Gilzai, or different branches of the Alakozai vie for cash and favors. Yet many soldiers pay insufficient heed to this issue, and it is almost impossible to master tribal complexities in a limited tour of duty. The CIA has a vast Afghan station of some 800 officers. Electronically gathered intelligence is good, but political intelligence remains weak. The U.S. government appears baffled about what to do with Pakistan. Of course, it would be admirable if the border could be closed to insurgents and the country's inter-services intelligence, ISI, abandoned its traditional double game, aiding the Taliban. But there seems no realistic prospect this is going to happen, that the West can either bludgeon Islamabad into compliance or exercise short-term leverage on Pakistan's tottering institutions. U.S. drone attacks are killing a steady stream of Taliban and al-Qaeda leaders in their Pakistani sanctuaries, but this is an expedient rather than a policy. Many thoughtful Westerners believe it is impossible to achieve regional progress without defusing the Kashmiri confrontation, the cause of so much mutual hatred between India and Pakistan, but there seems little will on either side to do this. Delhi regards itself as having legitimate strategic interest in Afghanistan, which under Taliban rule became a base for many terrorist incursions into India. This, in turn, feeds Pakistan's paranoia. The new road, built with $136 million of Indian aid money from the Iranian border to the Afghan heartland, will enable India to ship goods by sea to Afghanistan, strengthening an important trading relationship while weakening Pakistan's. 
when it suggested to Delhi that its activism in Afghanistan is mischievous in its consequences, if not intent, Indians responded that they have vital security interests that they will uh, that will have to be protected long after the West has folded its tents and gone home. Meanwhile, Iranian meddling in Afghanistan is becoming more noticeable and injurious to Western interests. These are among the most important issues that soldiers cannot resolve, but which the political leaderships of America and its allies seem incapable of addressing. Of course, military operations form a critical element in stabilization, but I suggest that for too long soldiers have been left to do as they think best because politicians are baffled. Hugh Strachan, a Chichele professor of the study of war at Oxford University, wrote recently that there has been a strategic default both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Quote, the result has often been war shaped by platoon and company commanders. A series of ill-considered tactical actions where killing and casualties define success. Close quote. Western commanders are today enthusiastic about progress in training Afghan soldiers and policemen, yet almost all army recruits are drawn from the north of the country and are seen as foreigners in the Pashtun South. Despite annual expenditures of $12.6 billion on the security forces, desertions are still running at 18%, which means recruiting an additional 25,000 men a year merely to maintain strength. <clears throat> The most likely course for Afghanistan in 2011 is that the military will continue to proclaim progress, that Mr. Obama will accept a token summer troop reduction because he is enthralled to General Petraeus, the most celebrated American soldier of his time, and because he fears the political cost of quitting, allowing Republicans to brand him as, quote, the man who lost the Afghan war. The struggle will go on simply because a lot of people have vested interests in avoiding explicit recognition of failure. But it seems to some of us impossible that real headway can be made with a broken-backed Kabul government and regional political stagnation. For all the talk about reconciliation with the Taliban, why should they deal when they think they are winning and when they, are, uh, when they prosper in large areas where NATO does not? I defer to no one in my respect for soldiers, but nobody should fool themselves that the Afghan war can have a happy ending as long as the military are left to run it on their own. And with nobody willing to uh, concede failure or to call the chips as they lie, uh, outside of political establishments, political administrations, and so-called intelligence services, that leaves you and I, uh, dear listeners, to pick up the $110 billion a year tab, which uh, if you stop and think just for a moment about what one year worth of Afghan war spending would mean to local communities here at home, uh, it either makes you sick or angry. Uh, one of the two. Well... I'm just going to read this short item really quickly. We've just got a few minutes left here before Yazoo City Calling takes the airwaves. By the way, thanks to Andrew for engineering today, as per usual. <clears throat> and I hope everybody is having a safe, safe and happy holiday. Here's a slightly startling uh, item about uh, possible food scares in the near future. And this is from uh, Thursday, December 23rd also. 
uh, Javier Blas, writing in London, Mexico has taken the unusual step of insuring itself against the effect of rising corn prices on tortilla, a food staple for millions in the country, and the latest sign of growing concern about food inflation in emerging countries. Rising food inflation has become a big headache in countries from Mexico to China and India, largely because bad weather has ruined crops, forcing up prices. Food accounts for up to half of household spending in emerging countries, compared with just 15% in Europe and the U.S. The move by Mexico, disclosed by its economics minister, came as the quoted price of corn in Chicago hit a two-year high on the back of a smaller-than-expected harvest in the U.S., which accounts for more than half of the world's exports. Bruno Ferrari told local media on Wednesday that the government had bought futures uh, had bought futures contracts to fix the cost of corn. Quote, the prices are guaranteed, he said. The supply is also guaranteed until the third quarter of the next year. Close quote. A government official confirmed his comments. Mexican tortilla makers threatened last week to raise prices by 50% to offset the impact of higher corn and natural gas costs. That has prompted fears of a repeat of the tortilla riots of 2007 when protesters demonstrated against rising food prices. Richard Feltes, grain analyst at brokerage firm R.J. O'Brien, said it was the first time he could recall that a country had disclosed it was buying futures. Quote, there had been rumors in the past about other countries, including China, but it has never been confirmed. Close quote. Traders expect corn and other agricultural commodities to surge early next year because of low inventories and concerns about the size of the crop in Latin America. Corn prices rose on Wednesday to six dollars and nine three quarters cents a bushel, up forty six percent from January to a twenty eight month high. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has warned that the country's corn stocks will fall to their lowest in fifteen years by the middle of next year. Quote, there is a better than 50-50 chance that the corn market will take out an all-time high of $7.65 a bushel set in June 2008. So far this year, Russia, Ukraine, and India have imposed export restrictions on food commodities. China has also announced retail price controls. So the very stuff of life itself uh, is wheeled and dealed and negotiated uh, before the crops are even planted for next year. So I guess shop wisely and uh, the old saw that your uh, grandma and grandpa used to tell you when you were a kid, oh, you better eat that because there's hungry kids in China. Uh, food prices uh, continue to uh, rise not just uh, around the world, but also here at home, of course. Thoughtful, careful consumption and support of local agricultural markets uh, also become really important. So uh, consider uh, shopping more locally, uh, whatever possible. It's uh, 7.01 and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm not sure if anybody uh, besides Andrew and I is here yet. But we're going to cut on out for Yazoo City Calling. So thanks for listening. Uh, Dick Whaley will rejoin me next week. And uh, have a safe and happy New Year's Eve to all.